Hello and welcome to the second episode of Two Dead Pines. I feel like I need a sound bit for that introduction, but that would be pretty pointless because this is only the second episode and the first episode has zero views. Well, that kind of worked. Sorry if I blew out your eardrums. Who knows if that'll stick, but that was destroyed by hippie powers, which will make sense later on in this podcast because everything is connected. I'm Megan Elise, your host, and in this episode, we are going to be discussing the drug called psychedelics. If you don't know about these, I'm glad to be the one that introduces you into this complicated and vast field of drugs. And if you do already know about them, or have taken them perhaps, I'm sure you'll be familiar with a lot of the subjects I touch upon. So to begin, before I even start to explain what psychedelics are, let me explain what you think they are. And by you, I'm assuming the regular American Joe Schmo, as I once was about two months ago. And to me, when someone back then, when someone said acid or shrooms, I immediately thought of hard drugs, as in very intense drugs that bad people take, much like heroin or meth. And this, this came kind of came from my health class where, you know, they would tell you, don't do LSD, you're going to jump out a window, and then you're going to stare in the sun until you go blind. And then, like, same with shrooms. It's just, they were just bad drugs. They'd be like, don't do heroin, meth, or acid. But anyway, to further expand upon this example of this counterculture, I'm going to begin to, by playing some songs from my favorite band, Cursey Headrest, that reinforces this culture, or perhaps exists as a product of it. Now, listening to these songs before... I began researching, I had never noticed the role that these drugs had been unknowingly pushed into, but it did catch my eye, so to say, when I listened again, post-research. So this first song is off their album, and by the way, this is definitely a promotion of this band. No way would I be playing this if I didn't like the band at all, so go listen to them. Anyway, this first song is off their album, Teens of Denial, which is one of you know what, I'm probably just going to do a whole podcast about Cursey Headrest and my experience with them, because absolutely no one cares about that, and that's what podcasts are all about. The lead singer of this band, Will Toledo, I actually invited him to come on the podcast and kind of explain his use of these drugs in his music, and just talk about his experience with them. Um, but then I got impatient. I just sent the letter out like yesterday, and I got impatient. So if he replies, then I'll probably redo the podcast. But he won't, because why would he? So let's just get on with it. This is Destroyed by Hippie Powers off their album, Teens of Denial. you on a cliffhanger there if you want to hear the rest of the song go look it up destroyed by hippie powers carsey Heterist. but woo hit of dmt well this song takes place in a party because in the beginning he sings i'm freaking out in my mind in a house that isn't mine and you know they're drinking beer a guy he hates is there it really just sets up this whole party scene and then at the peak of the song of this experience he is super hyped up, you know, he's having a good time, he's pretty drunk, and he's just like, Woo! Let me take a hit of DMT right now. But at a party? DMT is arguably the most intense and powerful psychedelic found on Earth. And as, it, and at, as with any other psychedelic, it's super important to pay attention to set and setting. Set, referring to your mindset entering the trip, and setting, referring to your physical setting. 
you want to be somewhere where you can feel safe and ultimately get the most of your experience. And feeling unsafe when under the influence of this drug can lead to what is coined as a bad trip and can result in traumatic experiences. And I don't know about the average person, but me personally, I would not feel safe in the middle, middle of a party, especially with people I hate there, doing this really powerful as hell drug. Also, I would want to get the most out of the experience, you know, transcend to another dimension, see God and shit. That's not really something I would dub a party activity. Maybe for Joe fucking Rogan, but for the rest of us lowly three-dimensional beings, a quiet, mind-blowing experience should suffice. But also, this song is called Destroyed by Hippie Powers, which could just as well refer to him being fucked up because of the DMT at this party. But still, the party drug thing about it kind of bugs me. So one more song from Carsey that also touches this subject, and it's actually kind of funny, well not funny at all, but it just relates that I first learned about psychedelics, or even heard that word, through one of their songs, um, I think from the early 2000s or so, when the songwriter, Will Toledo, sings that his soul had been psychedelic psychedelicized and I had no fucking clue what that meant so I looked it up in my high school library and I was still confused so thanks for introducing me to drugs but anyway this next song is called wow okay that's a fucking long title so in parentheses Joe gets kicked out of school for using in parentheses drugs with friends parentheses but says this isn't a problem in parentheses it's an amazing song, and also off their album, Teens of Denial. So let's listen to this. Last Friday I took acid and mushrooms. I did not transcend. I felt like a walking piece of shit. A stupid looking jack. So we, what we can get from this is that Will is a piece of shit with stupid jackets. No, no. Okay, wait, that he feels like a piece of shit, that there's, there's a difference there. But anyway, this song too, surprise, surprise, takes place at a party where the singer takes both acid and mushrooms, but not, as he states, transcending. The rest of the song goes on to explain how shitty this trip is and how apparently both Jesus and his father appear to him and refer to him as the scum of the earth. And basically, he learns that drugs are better with friends and friends with drugs. When you think of acid, you think of a party drug, something that belongs in, like, a huge Hollywood rager. Same with shrooms. And Will, the singer, is definitely enforcing that idea here. It just kind of, it's just kind of painful when you know that psychedelics can change and open so many people to its life-changing effects, if only it could get over its stigma. Anyway, I love Carsey Hedras, and I'm sure Toledo understands this about these drugs, and I don't think it's something he was consciously doing, but I do think they make a good introduction into the American psychedelic mindset. Now before we go any further and learn a little bit about the history of these drugs, I just want to say that I have never taken any psychedelics, so I can't speak to the matters personally. I mean, I do hope to in the future. And I do have some personal experience by watching, having someone close to me take them and seeing how it kind of changed their life, which I may or may not get to later. But now let's start with the big question that I'm answering pretty late into the podcast. What are psychedelics? Psychedelics, also known as ethanogens, are a group of psychoactive drugs classified by their hallucinogenic effects that can trigger visual and auditory auditory changes, and altered states of consciousness. Drugs in this class include LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, and more. The discovery of these substances is not a modern story, in any case. There is only one culture on Earth that doesn't make use of certain plants to alter a state of mind, whether for healing, religion, or spiritual practices. I want to emphasize the curious fact that LSD 
psilocybin, mescaline, and DMT can all be found in plants, and sometimes even in our own mind. Interesting, right? Psychoactive plants that humans eat and then melt into the universe? What are these drugs? Where do they come from? And why do they produce such profound experiences for the human mind? Well, first, let's look at a brief overview of the history of each one. Let's start with LSD. A young chemist working for Sandoz Pharmaceutical was assigned to synthesize a chemical that could stimulate the respiratory and circulatory systems. Albert Hoffman began synthesizing different ergot compounds, and ergot is a fungi that infects grain. Recreating ergot's active ingredients, Hoffman combined lysergic acid with various other organic molecules to see what results it could produce. So, after creating about 24 of these combinations, he synthesizes the 25th one, or reacts the 25th one, which is reacting lysergic acid with dithylamine, which I'm going to mispronounce all chemical compounds, I apologize. And this becomes LSD. So when he first creates it, he tests it on an animal, and it doesn't seem to do much. The animal acts a little strange, but at the time the compound seemed pretty useless for the task at hand, so they just shelf it. However, five years later, Hoffman had the unusual urge, and if you listen to him retell the story years later, he definitely gives it sort of a mystical spin, kind of like he felt like he was called or something to resynthesize LSD again. Whether or not it was sort of a universal intervention, or fate, or destiny, whatever you want to call it. Well, I guess that just depends on what you choose to believe. But anyway, he synthesizes LSD again, and he accidentally ingests some, becoming, which makes him become aware of its psychedelic effects. And psychedelic means mind-altering, which is a pretty accurate term for these sort of drugs. So, this day, April 19th, 1943, becomes known as Bicycle Day, as Hoffman rode his bike home while tripping, which is an impressive feat. And the rest, so they say, is history. Thanks to a fungi and grain and a Swiss chemist. Now, psilocybin has a lot less complicated history, chemically speaking because no one had to synthesize it. It's a plant, but it has been around a lot longer, so it has a lot of cultural ties. Its introduction, its introduction to the Western culture can be pinpointed by to one healer from Southern Mexico, known as Maria Sabina. Maria would conduct a ceremony where all participants in the ritual ingested psilocybin mushrooms as a sacrament to open the gate to the mind. This was a sacred healing vigil, and the mushrooms seen as a means to communicate with God. No foreigners have ever participated in this ceremony, or even knew about the secret magic mushrooms that were so sacred in this culture. That is, until 1955, when U.S. ethomycologist, which is someone who studies fungi, R. Gordon Wasson, visited Maria's hometown and charmed his way into one of these ceremonies. He had this insane experience, which you can read about because he wrote about it in a Life magazine that introduced this magic mushroom to the rest of the world. Oh, mainly America, but then on the rest of the world. What's interesting is that the primary ingredient of this fungi, the psychoactive one, philocybin, psilocybin, I might be mispronouncing that, was isolated in, in the laboratory by the same chemist who kind of discovered, so to say, LSD, Albert Hoffman, in 1958. Anyway, after this Life article was published, the rest of America had to try this mushroom for themselves, hence the introduction of shrooms into the U.S., but like I said, this mushroom has been, and still is, used by many cultures, way before Wasson tried it, and as seen 
and as seen is in many of these cultures as communication with God, and it's a sacred plant. A psychoactive plant that we have here in the U.S., though we do have mushrooms that also grow in the U.S., but um, peyote is a cacti that contains the psychoactive chemical mescaline. This cacti can be found in Mexico and southwestern Texas. This too, like the magic mushroom, has cultural ties with a culture that was here way before uh, the western culture was. Many Native American tribes had rituals and religions that surround this plant. And when the U.S. government outlawed it, they formed the Native American church surround that surrounds this cacti, this peyote. And the Supreme Court had ruled that these chemicals could be ingested for religious purposes. And now natives are legally able to perform ceremonies with this cacti that they have been performing for centuries. Now, if we're going to talk about DMT, even after all the research I've done about psychedelics, I'm still pretty confused about DMT. So, it can be found in plants. For example, mimosa hostilis root bark is, has high concentrations of DMT, and I think it is illegal to buy this powdered root bark in the United States, even though it's a pretty common ingredient in a lot of dermatology products. But what's so confusing about DMT is because I've read a lot of things about scientists have found trace concentrations of DMT in rat brains. And so they think that the human mind might also contain DMT and that maybe it's produced at birth and death. Again, I'm not really sure if this is true or not. Just a lot of rumors that I've heard. And it kind of confuses scientists too, because why would our brains produce DMT or a psychedelic chemical? But anyway, these drugs have places in human cultures, and they play important roles in these cultures concerning religion, spirituality, and healing. Not to mention the fact that they literally grow up from the earth. They are plants. They are natural. It really does seem crazy to me when I realize that the government is literally outlawing cactuses, mushrooms, and grain bacteria. But enough about background. Now let's see what these drugs really do. Let's hear some trip stories. Instead of just googling trip reports, I actually looked down in the comments of Joe Rogan videos about DMT and psych substance and curious mind videos and really you can find a lot of good shit if you just scroll down to the comments and I think they are credible I don't think people will go through this much effort just to make up a fake trip report and they're pretty interesting too so here we go this is the first DMT trip story that I have it's quote starting quote it starts with colors, lights, and edges of objects becoming more sh vibrant and sharp. Then everything goes smooth. Then it's like a flickering of being here and being there. You take a few more hits and relax and meditate, and the physical world seems to fade away. You're in a third-person outlook. You're just you. No body, no world, no, no one. Red, yellow, and orange. It starts off with a tunnel. The tunnel of color turns to a spiraling tunnel. You are entering from here. You are shown millions of things so random and weird your mind can't slow down for. A second to understand what's your mind can't slow down for a second to understand what's coming in your head. Geometrical shapes and colors begin to morph into elegant and beautiful shapes. It all seems so perfect. Everything is meant to be. You realize life isn't what you thought it was. You realize you can never go back. You realize that this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what the world doesn't want us to know. This is the greatest secret of mankind. Maybe I'm the universe. You realize everything is truly meant to be and that it's true when people tell you this. This is if you smoke enough. Just remember, if you are able to open your eyes, talk, or even think normally, even a little, 
You didn't do it enough. Much love. I broke through April 5th, 2018. It changes my life. I can say I'm not a perfect person, but I want to be. End quote. Kanye works on his grammar a little bit. But it's a good story. And... Yeah, it's... I don't know. It seems so insane. Okay, let's go on to the second story. This is another DMT trip story. From YouTube. Quote. From my recent DMT trip learned. DMT with different music can transport you to a different dimension based on those vibrations and frequency that music reverberates at. When I was listening to reggae on DMT, I felt as a liquid of chanting, I felt as a liquid of chanting tranquility and perfect harmony in an evergreen spiraling in endless eons of geometric shapes with colors that brought tears to my eyes. After remembering that trip, meanwhile, up in the sacred realm, I was surrounded by friendly Lego-like entities, happy to see me on my arrival, now continuing about sounds, since sounds can be felt in our souls, platitudes of vibrational consciousness at an atomic and infinitesimal level. If we can confirm the cosmic string theory to be real, then maybe the cosmic string theory can be man's interpretation. That could be the DNA of fractal and realms of colorful and magical entities. Eternities. Main thing, I felt love. I became love. DMT saved me from suicide and self-harm. Self-mutilation. I can't remember when was the last time I was sad or depressed. I love myself more than ever now. Love connects all. Love feels all. Love conquers all. There is nothing, nothing to fear, even time and death, pale in comparison to our eternal worth. Let the universe show you the waters of eternity. Love conquers all. End quote. So now you guys kind of get a gist of what we're dealing with here. I mean, so far I've only talked about the history of these drugs and kind of the culture around them. But reading these rare like it's just raw emotion reading these stories it's a whole different it's a whole different field I'm definitely coming at it from a scientific standpoint or just a factual standpoint but reading these the appeal to pathos unintentionally is just is just insane and it's really it's really curious how these plants can produce such an experience and these people it's not a bad experience these drugs don't seem bad they're making them feel love they're changing their lives for the better they feel they feel that time and death pales in comparison to their eternal worth how is that a bad thing and how the hell is will toledo wanting to take that at a party it's even says on quote here from the first trip if you were able to open your eyes, talk, or even think normally, you didn't do it enough. And I have heard that when you take DMT, you want to take at least three hits or else it's not going to be the full experience. I really feel like I ought to unpack these more, but at the same time, I think they really speak for themselves. I don't think I really need to go in depth and kind of analyze these reports because... They seem pretty clear to me. But I do want to point out the geometric shapes and colors are mentioned in both um, both stories. And that is kind of a pattern for psychedelics with LSD too, you, which is a psychedelic obviously. But you start to see geometric patterns and spirals and colors. And that's kind of a visual effect of these drugs. So I also have a psilocybin trip story that I'd like to share with you guys. It's not from a YouTube comment, so who knows how credible it's going to be, and the grammar might be shit, but we'll make do. But it's from the book, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence, by Michael Pollan. Published in 2018, this book is the first place I would start if you want a thorough, thorough informative, somewhat objective introduction into the realm of psychedelics. 
Begin with this book to build a solid foundation, not becoming too sucked into the magical side of psychedelics without forgetting the science, while on the flip side, not becoming sucked into the concrete science side of the drug without remembering the potent mystery that still remains. Pollen has written a lot of other books on plants in the food chain, and he's a real botany guy, a great writer, definitely check him out. A lot of what I'm going off of in this podcast, and what kind of began to form my whole interest in psychedelics, is from this book. The excerpt I'm about to read is from when Pollen and his wife Judith trip on mushrooms. Pollen is laying in a one-room cabin looking at a hydrania, which is a climbing vine-like plant, in front of the window. This can be found on page 132. Starting quote. Backlit by the late afternoon, sunlight streaming in, its neat round leaves completely filled the window, which meant you gazed out at the world through the fresh green scrime they formed. It seemed to me these were the most beautiful leaves I had ever seen. It was as if they were emitting their own soft green glow, and it felt like a kind of privilege to gaze out at the world through their eyes. As if, as it were, as the leaves drank up the last drops of sunlight, transforming those photons into real matter. A plant's eyes view of the world. It was that, and for real. But the leaves were also looking back at me, fixing me with this utterly benign gaze. I could feel their curiosity, and what I was certain was an attitude of utter benevolence towards me and my kind. Do I need to say that I know how crazy this sounds? I do. I felt as though I was communing directly with the plant for the first time, and that certain ideas I had long thought about and written about, having to do with the subjectivity of other species and the way they act upon us in ways we're too self-regarding to appreciate, had taken on the flesh of feeling in reality. I looked through the negative spaces formed by the hydrangea leaves to fix my gaze on the swamp maple in the middle of the meadow beyond, and it too was now more alive than I had ever known a tree to be infused with some kind of spirit. This one, too, benevolent. The idea that there had ever been a disagreement between matter and spirit seems risable, and I felt as though whatever it is that usually divides me from the world out there had begun to fall away. Not completely. The battlements of ego had not fallen. This was not what the researchers would deem a complete mystical experience, because I retained the sense of an observing eye. But the doors and perception had opened wide, and they were admitting more of the world in its myriad non-human personalities than ever before. So I chose to include this trip report because one, well, it's professional. It's not a YouTube comment. <laughs> those, though, those were interesting, I thought. But also because it shows his connection it's more it's simpler it's not a connection with the universe but it's a connection with nature and a connection with plants and the way he talks about trees having spirits and a plants a plant kind of looking at you kindly is weirdly enough something that i've experienced just when i'm sober on a hike or meditating in the woods i'm just looking at trees and i'm like hey you're really nice and you're alive right now. And so the fact that that kind of aspect of this world was amplified when he was on mushrooms, I found that pretty interesting and able to relate to it personally. I hope now at this point in the podcast, after hearing some trip reports, you're starting to kind of, first of all, become amazed that these drugs are illegal in the U.S. in the federal with the federal government when it obviously no one's jumping out of windows here and no one's going crazy having psychotic breaks in fact they're saying right here to quote love conquers all love feels all love conquers all love connects all there is nothing to fear I mean this is amazing and It's not something you want to do at a party. That's not to say that these drugs are not dangerous or can't be dangerous, because they can. And I want to emphasize the fact that they need to be used responsibly with 
a guide, someone who is experienced and will keep you safe and help guide you during a trip. Because you can, if you're already predisposed to psychotic breaks or on the verge of a mental illness, this can push you over the edge and lead to that. As with every drug or substance, it does have a downfall. Well, it can be dangerous, potentially. And just because you go on it, it's not guaranteed either that you're going to have some amazing experience. I'm not sure if I was making that clear right there, so I just wanted to add that in. Also, sorry for mispronouncing everything, but that's cool. So kind of get rid of that stereotype within your head. And I can't believe I've neglected to mention the fact right now about ego death. But basically, ego death is where your sense of self, your ego, so to say, just dissolves completely and you don't exist anymore. Which is weird for us to even think about because everything we do and everything we see is subjective. We can't even imagine an experience in which we are not observing it. But if you're not observing it, then who is observing it? And how are you observing it if it's not you? So it's a really strange concept, but it can be experienced on high doses of psychedelics. But this is not all fun and games. Having a bad trip is a very real reality. I may not have experienced this exactly, but a lot of things can cause a bad trip. Anxiety and fear prior to the trip, and a lot of times, the struggle to hold on tight to your mind and not let go can lead to a bad trip. Somewhere I read that the worst thing to happen during a trip is wanting it to stop. And that's very true if you think about it, because it won't stop. It can't stop. It, the drug's going to, if you're on LSD or acid, it, or acid, they're the same thing, LSD or mushrooms, it can go on for hours at a time. And even if you want it to stop, it's not going to. So that's just going to create more anxiety within the trip. And so this is why if you have um, a guided session, the guide would usually tell you, if you see a door, open it. If you see a stairway, climb it. Basically, just let the drugs take your mind where it wants. If you fight the ocean, you're going to drown. Speaking from personal matters, I really do think you have the ability to control whenever whether a trip or high is going to be good or scary, though it is easier said than done. I don't want to go into the story right now because, frankly, it's not involving legal um, stuff, we'll say, and I don't want to get kicked out of college next year. I don't think that'll happen because no one views this, but I might talk about it later. But to kind of conclude this trip report section of the podcast... Just remember that for centuries, these drugs have been used to connect humans with nature, a creator, to show them their place in this net of being of the universe, to humble and gratify them that something exists. I mean, even without drugs, it's fucking crazy to think that anything exists at all. How is that even possible? Why is it even happening? Something exists, and that's amazing. But on a scientific scale... What is happening to our brains when our minds are off in the middle of the universe? Since the 50s, many studies have been done on psychedelics. They have shown amazing results in their ability to treat depression, anxiety, PTSD, alcoholism, addiction, and more. On healthy normals, which is just a term used by scientists as people who don't have mental illnesses or addiction or anything, these drugs have been shown to produce amazing life-changing experiences. And of course, this isn't guaranteed just because you trip on acid, you're going to change your life it's just something that could happen from this experience. So non-addictive, non-toxic, and very rare to die from overdose. What secret activity are these chemicals that produce such profound experience results carrying out in the human brain? 
There's no simple, easy way to explain the science behind this, so I'm going to use the book, How to Change Your Mind. I'm going to rely on that heavily because Michael Pollan has written an amazing chapter on the current neuroscience behind these drugs, even though we don't really know a whole lot about it. So I recommend you guys read it again, but I'm just going to be quoting a lot of the book right now. So to start off, we're going to talk, and I'm going to introduce the 5-HT2A receptor. One of several types of receptors in the brain that respond to the neurotransmitter serotonin. Psychedelic compounds also bind to this receptor. So imagine 5-HT2A as a sort of lock, and serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain, is the key, and it fits in the lock. Psychedelic compounds can sort of replicate this key and also go into the lock. And when they do that, it precipitates a cascade of poorly understood events that produce the psychedelic experience. And because of its distinctive molecular shape, LSD binds particularly well with this receptor. In addition, a portion of the receptor folds over the LSD molecule and holds it inside the receptor which could explain the intensity and long duration of an LSD trip. So that's kind of the chemicals that's going on, the chemical activity right here. And again, it precipitates this not really well understood events that happen. But let's move on to the default mode network, the DMN. So this is a set of interacting brain structures first described in 2001 by the Washington University neuroscientist Marcus Rachley. The default mode network is called that because it is most active when the brain is in a resting state. It links part of the cerebral cortex with deeper and evolutionarily older structures of the brain involved in emotion and memory. Neuroimaging studies suggest that the default mode network is involved in such higher order metacognitive activities such as self-reflection, mental projection, time travel, and theory of mind, which is the ability to attribute mental states to others. Activity in the DMN falls during the psychedelic experiences. And when it falls most, volunteers often report a dissolution of their sense of self. So basically, an ego death. So the DMN could be called sort of the ego of the mind, and activity in the DMN falls greatly when you experience an ego death on psychedelics. There is a study done by a scientist, Carhart Harris, where they scanned the brain a normal brain, and then scanned a brain that was tripping on psilocybin. And they found that when the brain operates under the influence of psilocybin, thousands of new connections form, linking far-flung brain regions that during normal waking consciousness don't exchange much information. So basically, traffic is rerouted from a relatively small number of interstate highways which is sort of like um, our default mode network. We always go on the, our thoughts always take these interstate highways. And then it was transformed into smaller roads, linking a great many more destinations. So suddenly, default mode network activity drops, and you create all these new connections all over parts of your brain that your thoughts can take these paths that weren't there before. And this can definitely lead to maybe inspiration and creativity and thinking outside the box that people can experience when they come out of psychedelic experiences and be like, whoa, I've never thought this way before. I've never thought about this project I was working on, this book I was writing. I'm st I was stuck, but now I kind of have a new idea of where to go. That could be a result of these experiences. These new links could also give rise to hallucination. So if you're tripping and you look in the mirror and see someone else's face, that could be a result of these new links. So they can man so the forming of these novel connections can manifest in mental experience as a new idea, a fresh perspective, a creative insight, or the ascribing of new meanings to familiar things, 
or any number of the bizarre mental phenomena people on psychedelics report. When on psychedelics, you're increasing entropy, which in this case means chaos, just unorgan it's not organized. And it, this in increase in entropy allows a thousand mental states to bloom, many of them bizarre and senseless, but some number of them imaginative and at least potentially transformative. A key question that this experiment brings up but doesn't really begin to answer is whether the new neural connections that psychedelics made possible, do they last? Or does the brain's wiring go back to normal once the drug wears off? The findings by Roland Griffin's lab, another scientist who conducts experiments on psychedelics, suggests that psychedelic experiences leads to long-term changes in the personality trait of openness. It raises the possibility that some kind of learning takes place while the brain is rewired or tripping and that in some way it might persist after the trip. The learning entails the establishment of new neural circuits and these get stronger with the more exercise that they receive. So maybe some things will last after the trip and some won't. The idea of increasing entropy in the human brain sounds not like something we want. We've evolved, our brains have evolved and grow by the time we're adults to a decrease in entropy. Everything's very organized and nothing's, nothing's uncertain. So by the time we reach adulthood, the sway of habitual thinking over the operations of the mind is nearly obsolete. So when you, an adult mind goes on psychedelics, you're kind of shaking the snow globe, seeing if you can renovate your everyday mental life by introducing a greater measure of entropy and uncertainty into it. Getting older can render the world more predictable, yet it also lightens the burden of responsibility, making a space for new space for experiment. So... If you're an adult and trying these drugs, you can see if it's possible to skip out some of the deeper grooves of habit, of the been there, done that, of long experiences that have inscribed on your mind. Alison Gopnik is a developmental psychologist and philosopher who wrote the book The Philo Philosophical Baby. Basically, she's kind of come to the conclusion that Babies and children are tripping all the time. They approach, their brains contain high levels of entropy, and they approach everything in the world with this uncertainty point of view, uncertain point of view, and everything's new to them. And they don't have as much as a developed ego as adults do. And their brains have all those little road connections from point A to point B and not just interstate highways. But however, as they grow older, those roads will start breaking. The connections will start disappearing and interstate highways will emerge. Concerning some mental illnesses in these drugs, here's an interesting quote from Gopnik that I think kind of says a lot about this. Quote, there are a range of difficulties and pathologies in adults, like depression, that are connected with the <sighs> phenomenology of rumination and an excessively narrow ego-based focus. You get stuck on the same thing. You can't escape. You become obsessive, perhaps addicted. It seems plausible to me that the psychedelic experience could help us get out of those states, create an opportunity in which the old stories of who we are might be rewritten. So this experience could work as a kind of reset, as when you introduce a burst of noise into a system that has gotten locked into a rigid pattern. Quieting the default mode network and loosening the grip on the ego, which she suggests may be illusionary anyway, might be helpful to such people. Gopnik's idea of a brain reboot sounds kind of like Carhartt Harris's notion of shaking the snow globe, a way to boost entropy or heat in a system that has gotten frozen stuck. Being depressed is kind of a result of your ego having this metal grip on your mind and 
allowing the default mode network is kind of trapping you inside this self-reflection loop and it reinforces itself and you don't really get anywhere and these experiences can get you out of that loop. Here's a quote from Carhart Harris when he was describing a exper- um experiment he was doing where treating depressed people and giving them these drugs. And a, one of these ladies was severely depressed. He said he had never seen her smile once when they went to dinner um, before one of the before the trial because they met several times before that. And then as he sat with her during her psilocybin journey, she smiled for the very first time. And this is the quote. After it was over, she told me she had been visited by a guardian angel. She described a presence of some kind a voice that was entirely supportive and wanted her to be well. It would say things like, Darling, you need to smile more. Hold your head up high. Stop looking down at the ground. Then it reached over and pushed up my cheeks. She said, lifting the corners of my mouth. End quote. Treating depression is just one of the therapeutical applications with these drugs. They're also being experimented to see if they can help terminally ill patients, such as people with cancer, lessen the anxiety of knowing you're going to die. And they have had very high success rates. These drugs are being experimented right now for these therapeutic purposes, and they're being advocated for for healthy normals to use as well, to better themselves and their lives. I hope this gave you a little bit of at the a little bit of an idea of the science behind it. It's so much more in depth and deep than what I'm saying right now. And mostly what I'm saying is from this chapter in the book, because I'm not a neuroscience scientist and it's pretty confusing, but I think the main idea is there. Is it just some chemical reaction in your mind where it's deactivating the default mode network and allowing you to maybe see the world a little differently? Or is it really this huge mystical experience where we can see a creator and we can experience a oneness with the entire universe? Why? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I don't think anyone knows. If someone knew, we would be in a very different place right now as a human kind. You have your extremes on either side, okay? You have you have the cultures that these plants, these substances kind of originated from, like the healers in Mexico, the Native American church where they are a spiritual connection to nature and to God. And then you have the researchers at John Hopkins and, you know, the Harvard um, Psilocybin Project, where it's hypothetically, in the best case, supposed to be completely objective, and you're just looking at how it affects the human mind. What could we possibly use with it? What kind of therapeutic applications could it have? Is there some sort of middle ground? And kind of going off our last episode where we discussed organized religion, spirituality, and science, where's that middle ground there? There has to be one. And I really don't know. I think, as since we can see the changes in these people who take these drugs, since we, if we can see real changes then does it even matter if the experience is quote-unquote real or not? I mean, to quote Harry Potter, the famous quote from Dumbledore, of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean it isn't real? So maybe these things are happening inside our brain, and it's, 
and we come back thinking that, oh, our consciousness is expanded, we're one with the universe, it's this entire net of being. Maybe it is, but if it's not, it doesn't really matter. Because people are feeling happier, they're feeling more connected, they're quitting their addictions. Even if you are what uh, researchers would call a healthy normal, you're becoming a better person and taking steps in your life that make you happier. And I don't really think it matters if these experiences are real or not. Because to the person, the subjective experience is real enough to make a change. And that's all that kind of matters. And another question this brings up is, why do mushrooms produce psilocybin? They produce mushrooms have mycelium, which is their roots, that go feet, sometimes even miles underground. And the fruit body, which is just the part we see above the ground, is kind of useless. Like, you don't really, it doesn't matter if it gets eaten. And so why are they producing this chemical? It's not really for a defense mechanism, because it doesn't hurt the animal in any way. So why even have it in the first place? There are some theories that it's a, just a very, very smart way for these mesh- mushrooms to spread. Because if you think about it, human humans are the most agile, to so to say, species that there is. We travel everywhere. I mean, look how fast COVID-19 spread around the globe. It was months, weeks maybe. So if mushrooms can get humans to do their bidding by producing this crazy experience where other humans would want to try it, and so it spreads, and then we take it to other places, and then we kind of come to worship the mushroom in some cultures. And, I mean, today, you're, if a lot of people who have taken the mushrooms, I'm sitting in my brother's room right now, and he has a tapestry of mushrooms with wings, and then a little a little wooden mushroom right here in my hand, like, you come to have a respect for it. And so is this some giant plot from... I'm not I'm not trying to sound like crazy conspiracy, like, oh, the mushroom is God and it's taking over. No, I'm not saying the mushroom's conscious, but it could be a very advanced evolutionary prospect. And I haven't even touched upon... The reality of our reality. We see things as real. Everything right now I'm sitting outside in my yard and everything looks real. The trees, the plants, the light that my eyes are able to see and what my brain decodes it so I recognize them as trees, as a chipmunk right there, as a bird. But this reality is not the only reality there is. Everybody sees things differently. And to pull some more examples from the book, How to Change Your Mind, think about a bee, okay? A bee sees the world through its eyes to perceive ultraviolet markings on the petals of flowers, which have evolved to guide their landings like runway lights. That doesn't exist for us. Think about what the reality of a bee would look like. Think about the reality of an octopus. Imagine how differently it would present itself to a brain that has been so radically decentralized that its intelligence is distributed across the eight arms so that each one of them has its own sensory sensory outputs and can make its own decisions without consulting headquarters. This reality is by no means real. And just because we see it this way doesn't mean that's how it actually is. And I think that psychedelics can break down this whole notion of this is just the way things are. Our brains funnel the amount of information we perceive from the world so they fit perfectly within our our ego. They fit perfectly to connect to our past and to make plans for our future. We're not necessarily seeing the world as it is. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about psychedelics is that it has the ability to break down that network in our brain.
also expand our consciousness. I want to reach different levels of consciousness. Meditation is a good way to do that. But these drugs are um, a high road. Or kind of the highway rather than taking the long way, which would be meditation. And I want to die before I die. It would take a lot of fear off life. Holotropic breathing is a meditation that is supposedly you're able to trip without the psychedelics. It's basically actively hyperventilating, and I have tried it, and it is very real. It is... I had an insane experience when I tried it. It was kind of scary, honestly. I, d I stopped. Um, it was like 2 a.m. The rest of my family was asleep, but it was very amazing. I couldn't really feel my body. I was seeing geometric shapes and patterns and I really didn't have control over where my mind was going. So I recommend you do that, but definitely look into it first because it can be, um, you just want to use it with caution as with any drug. But really, there's so many mysteries to talk about here. Read the book and do your own research. I'm really giving you a Walmart's version of this entire subject. And I really love to discuss this if someone, um, if you have any questions or any ideas you want to throw by me, go ahead and reach out. I think it's a very interesting subject and I'm definitely going to keep pursuing it. Um, the chemistry behind it, the biology, the science, and, and the non-scientific implications that it holds. Thanks to the tactics of Timothy Leary and a few other hotshots from the 60s, we live in a time where many psychoactive drugs are labeled as Schedule One drugs, defined as, to quote the United States Drug Enforcement Administration, drugs with no current accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, end quote. Which, if we know anything at all about these drugs from this, like, hour-long podcast, that is not the truth. Yet while psychedelics are up there with meth and heroin, Alcohol is legalized even though it has high potential for abuse, is toxic for the body, has killed millions of people, and has very low benefits. I mean, I'm not bashing alcohol. I mean, I drink too. It's fun to get a little drunk sometimes with friends. But it is baffling why it is considered a lower risk than, say, mushrooms. Then again, back in the 60s, Leary had a big plan of getting America's youth to take these drugs and change an entire nation. This seems to be a theme with psychedelic advocates, but most of them didn't do it on such a radical, crazy scale. And it was beginning to work. Young men were refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. What we now call hippies were emerging and talking about the planet, love, and the corruptness of our society. Well, I think Terrace McKenna, American ethobotanist, mystic, psychonaut, psychonaut, yeah, lecturer, author, and an advocate for the responsible use of naturally occurring psychedelic plants, responsible use, emphasize that, said it best in this quote, Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open you up to the possibility that everything you know is wrong. End quote. Well, I mean, look at American culture now. I'm only 18 years old, but even I get frustrated with the, the American values. Materialism, working, building, making everything bigger, better, greater. Pushed onto us by big companies and powerful, wealthy people. When a more meaningful life would come out of a lifestyle where we have a sense of belonging with nature. A circle of people who accept us. A feeling of connection to the universe. And just being able to be maybe reflected the fact that we are alive that was a red minivan driving by that's great kind of ironic but if everyone just reflected the fact that we were alive well lots of billionaires would be unhappy this is not to say that i hate the idea of economic growth and i hate rich people and evolving humankind no not at all 
I'm a very curious person and support many cool things of the frontier of human knowledge, like space travel, artificial intelligence, quantum physics research, and much more. But for those of you interested in the government, I mean, there's a lot of people now working to decriminalize these substances. And as a society, we really are getting there. People are getting more educated about psychedelics. But a cool, interesting thing to look up is MKUltra, which is a codename for an undercover research program on psychedelic drugs conducted by the CIA beginning in 1953. It was closed down in the 60s, um, but and all the files were destroyed. But there's still some interesting things to be read about there. To end this digression, let's bring it back to psychedelics. Obviously, I am not an expert on these things at all, but I still hope you learned a little bit, and hopefully I piqued your curiosity enough to start learning and researching for yourself, because really, we only skimmed the surface. There are so many studies and papers to read and immerse yourself into. This podcast, by the way, is not made with the intent to promote illegal drug use. I am not suggesting you try these drugs or any other illegal substances. This is purely for educational purposes. Anyway... That concludes the Psychedelic Podcast on Two Dead Pines. Thanks for listening. My name is Megan Elise, and I hope you all have a nice trip.